The text for this morning's sermon is Judges 6, verses 1 to 32. Judges 6, beginning at verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever whenever the Israelites planted crops... The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot, and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. 
To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abizarites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl in the second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bowl was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asher beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. As far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God hates to see his people live in slavery. Instead, he desires that his people would be free. Of course, we need to be careful here. What does it mean to live as free people? Well, many people define freedom as freedom from rules. Or the freedom to pursue whatever you want in life. However, that's not how the Bible describes true freedom. Think of what we read from John 8 with the Lord Jesus, where he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this is one thing that Israel in the time of the judges had not learned yet. Instead, they had fallen into the deadly problem described in Romans 1 about idolatry. There it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and then so they served and worshipped created things rather than the Creator. This is what we see them do in our text from Judges 6. Here they are serving the Baals again in slavery. Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Worshiping, serving, worshiping and serving Baal instead of the Lord. However, the Lord, in his grace, would not leave them there. He would work again to set his people free. So that's why I've also summarized the sermon this morning as follows. The Lord raises up a new judge to bring about a new exodus. First of all, we'll look at first um, humanity's greatest problem, and secondly, the Lord's saving grace, and finally, salvation begins at home. 
So our text begins with that constant refrain in the book of Judges. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. A new generation arose and they sank back into sinful ways. This shows the sad reality of our sinful nature. By nature, our human heart, it runs towards sin, gaining steam as it goes. That's why we get this constant cycle of apostasy in Judges. And with this opening refrain, you probably can predict what comes next. The sin of the people leads to this. The Lord gave them into the hand of the Midianites for seven years. And this was a new kind of pain that Midian inflicted on Israel. They overpowered the Israelites. They overrun their land. They entered the land together with the Amalekites and the peoples of the east. They started from the east and they advanced like a plague of savage locusts as they went. They ravaged the land, they annihilated the crops, they stole the livestock, and it was so bad that many of the Israelites, they had to go flee to the mountains and live in the mountains. And Israel then did the only sensible thing, they cried out to the Lord. And this was good, of course. But notice in our text, the Lord does not immediately give them the the relief that they crave, they cry out for. Something else needed to be done first. Instead of giving them immediately another judge, God first sent them a prophet. Israel had to learn the reason why this was happening. That's one of the purposes of the word of God. It's meant to wake us up to our sin. So easily we can just be blind to it or accept it. Israel needed this wake-up call. Sometimes we do too. Israel seemed oblivious to the evil they were doing. They were unrepentant. So the prophet brings the Lord's case against his people. And first he describes Yahweh's faithfulness and his saving works. I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage, of slavery. I saved you from the hand of the Egyptians. I I saved you from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. What's God saying? I've been so good and so gracious to you, Israel. And yes, he gave them his commandments, but his commandments were not burdensome. He said to them, I am the Lord your God. I said, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites. What did Israel do? They did exactly that. The Lord puts it plainly, you have not obeyed my voice. Some in Israel were wondering, where, where where was the Lord's faithfulness? You can see Gideon himself asked that in our text. He asked, where is the Lord whom we have heard about? Right, The God who brought us out of Egypt and worked all kinds of wonders. So they they were questioning God's faithfulness, but Israel had to realize that 
Faithfulness was not God's problem. It was Israel's problem. And God was not there simply to defeat Israel's enemies so that they could just live as they wished. No, he saved his people for a a relationship. A relationship with himself. But Israel rejected that relationship. Instead, they served idols. And this was Israel's greatest problem. The greatest problem they faced was not the Midianites coming into the land. Their greatest problem was not having to go live in the mountains. The greatest problem they had was that they were enslaved to idols. That's what idolatry is. It's slavery. Whenever we serve idols, which we are so prone to do, we subject ourselves to slavery. It's always good to ask yourself, what am I, what am I enslaved to in my life? It's most likely there's an idol behind it. And that slavery brings bitterness. It always does. It always will in the end. And God first sent Israel a prophet because they had to understand that this was their greatest problem. Even though they were no longer slaves in Egypt and lived in the promised land, they were still slaves. Slaves of sin, but they did not realize it. It's similar to the time of Christ. Take the average Israelite in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ when he was on earth. If you were to ask one of them, you know, what's, what's Israel's greatest problem right now? How, they, how might they respond? Well, our greatest problem is the Romans. The Romans are occupying our land. The Pharisees, they most likely would have responded that way. The Lord Jesus, he came as a prophet of God to God's people. He made it clear to them, this is not your greatest problem. Their greatest problem was sin. He said in John 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What did they answer? They said, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is that that you will say you will become free? Listen to how Jesus responds. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. These people that Jesus talked to in John 8, they never lived as slaves in Egypt. And yet Christ tells them you are slaves Because of your sin. And that was their greatest problem. This problem has not gone away. This is still today humanity's greatest problem. If you were to ask, you know, your your average person on the street, you know, what's, what's what's the world's greatest problem? Right now, right right today. They might answer, 
Well, it's a pandemic. Or maybe it's bad rulers in government. Or maybe millennials taking over Wall Street. But here we should ask, would we answer any differently? Do we understand the greatest problem in the world is idolatry, it's sin? And that we have to deal, we have to reckon with this problem too. And that we all by nature are slaves of sin and we're prone to serving idols. Have you come to grips with that in your own heart, in your own life? Now, we can't just point to the world and say, well, the problem in the world is out there. No, we should, first of all, point the finger to our own hearts and say the problem is right here. Reminds me of a story. A newspaper long ago once asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And a man named G.K. Chesterton is said to have written into the newspaper, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Wise words. Brings us to our next point. So the Lord had sent a prophet to Israel to call out Israel for its sin, and you would expect a different ending to the prophet's message. You would expect maybe that the Lord to end the prophet's message by saying something like this, uh, therefore, because of your sin, the Midianites will oppress you seven more years, or, or maybe something like that. But notice, that's not what happens. What does God do instead? He comes to his people in his pure saving grace. Right? That's one reason why he also sent the prophet, to realize, to make the people realize that God's salvation was an act of pure grace to them, as it is to us. And this is what we see in our text. The scene in Judges 6 switches to an area of Israel called Ophrah, and the angel of the Lord came under an oak tree there. Now, it's good for us to say at this point, a few things about the angel of the Lord here. It's a curious figure in the Old Testament. And in this exchange, it's hard to distinguish between the angel and the Lord himself. Uh, verse 12, the angel appeared to Gideon and he says, the Lord is with you. And then verse 14 then says, the Lord turned to Gideon. And then verse 16, the Lord then says, I will be with you. And in response, Gideon wants to offer the speaker a gift, and this gift is then presented to the angel of the Lord. Now, this is not the first time this sort of thing has happened with the angel of the Lord, where it's hard to distinguish the angel of the Lord and the Lord himself. You can see a similar thing in Exodus 3, where the Lord called Moses. You see similar things in Judges 13 with the announcement of Samson's birth. And this is why some have concluded, including John Calvin, that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. I will say we need to be careful not to jump to conclusions. But I do think studying everything, the text is bringing us to this sort of idea. We need to be careful. But in any case, the angel certainly has the authority of the Lord 
And he says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Now that's, that's a stunning greeting. It's also kind of difficult to believe. Difficult to, to believe for two reasons. One, it doesn't seem like God is with Israel or with Gideon at all. I mean, here's Gideon. He's in a wine press, threshing, threshing out his wheat because he's scared the Midianites are going to come and take his food. And two, Gideon looks nowhere near like a mighty man of valor. The rest of the Gideon story makes that clear. But, The Lord does not call us to believe his word because of what we see with our eyes. Instead, he calls us to live by faith based on what he says. Let me say say that again. The Lord does not call us to believe his word because of what we see with our eyes. Instead, he calls us to live by faith based on what he says. And that's because God is faithful. We should do that in our own life. Live by what God says. Let's live by faith and not by sight. See, God often calls people to be what they appear to be not. God changed Abram's name to Abraham, meaning father of many, even when he had no children. The Lord Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, meaning rock, even though Peter showed himself to be nowhere near rock solid. And God does this for us, too. He calls us righteous, even though we are sinful in ourselves. But he can do it through Jesus Christ. And he tells us to believe it by faith in his word. The Lord calls Gideon a mighty man of valor. Because Gideon himself is so mighty. But the Lord is with him. And that makes all the difference. Gideon objects, however. His tribe's the weakest in Manasseh. He's the weakest in his father's house. But that doesn't matter for God. In fact, that makes Gideon the perfect candidate to save Israel. God's power will be made perfect in his weakness. The Lord tells Gideon he will be with him. That's all Gideon really needs. That's what we need to believe, too. Christ says, I'm with you always. Let us hold on to that promise. That makes all the difference in this world. Notice what Gideon first says in response to the angel of the Lord. He says, where are all the Lord's wonderful deeds? Our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Basically, he's saying, where is the God of the Exodus? Why isn't he acting for Israel? Good question. But Gideon, don't you see the God of the Exodus is acting right now in calling you? Remember, Israel was in slavery at this time. Yes, they were in the promised land, no longer slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but they were slaves of sin. That's good for us to ask. What was the goal of the exodus from Egypt? Not so that Israel could live their own lives. No, God kept proclaiming to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might serve me. Here they are serving Baal. 
This means they are not serving the Lord, for as Christ himself says, you cannot serve two masters. And so that even though Israel came out of Egypt, the goal of the Exodus has not been fulfilled. And so another, a greater Exodus needs to happen. An Exodus from slavery to sin. This is the Exodus we all need to participate in too. Right? It's not good enough to say I'm a covenant child, so everything is just fine no matter how I live. No, we all need to be set free from sin. Christ says in John 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So Israel in Judges 6 needs this exodus. And then it's striking. The call of Gideon is so similar to the call of Moses in Exodus 3. Consider the similarities. God called Gideon in response to Israel's cries. The same is true of Moses in Exodus 3. The Midianites are the nations oppressing Israel in Judges 6. Moses is living in Midian in Exodus 3. The call of Gideon begins with, the, with an appearance of the angel of the Lord. The same is true of Moses in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. The Lord tells Gideon, I will be with you. He says the same to Moses in Exodus 3. Both Gideon and Moses cite their own weaknesses as reasons not to be called. God gives them both signs to reassure them. For Gideon, it will be the fleece at the end of chapter 6. For Moses, it was his hand turned leprous and the staff turned into a snake. And in both instances, fire is a means of revealing the Lord. In Exodus 3, it was a burning bush. In our text, it's a fire that consumes the offering. Gideon asked, where is the God of the Exodus? He's right here, Gideon, and he's at work. And Gideon may have realized the similarities between what he was seeing and what happened to Moses. And so he quickly ran to prepare some kind of offering for the person speaking to him. He wanted reassurance that the Lord himself was speaking. Gideon prepared quite a gift. When the angel of the Lord burnt up the gift and disappeared, Gideon then realized what was happening. He thought he was going to die. Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord reassured him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. So then Gideon built an altar, called it the Lord is peace. Brings us to our next point. So Gideon constructed his altar in response to God's declaration of peace. So the construction of this altar was at the same time a declaration of war. There were now altars for two gods in Israel, for Yahweh and for Baal. And the Lord does not tolerate other gods. And so that night, the Lord instructed Gideon to demolish his father's altar to Baal. And it's an interesting sequence of events. The angel of the Lord told Gideon he would save Israel from the hand of Midian. But where does this salvation begin? Right at his own home. The first battle is not against Midian. It's against Baal. It's against Asherah. 
And that's the most important battle. Israel needs to reckon with its idolatry. That's something we need to reckon with too. Remember that the problem in the world is not first of all out there, it's in here. Listen to Ephesians 5, verse 5. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is an idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Idolatry lives close to home. And we need to cut it out of our lives. God called Gideon to cut down the Baal and Asher at his father's house. He obeyed, but he did it at night. What might we think of that? Well, perhaps it shows inherent weakness in Gideon's heart, right? He didn't need to fear. The Lord promised to be with him. However, it's also understandable in a way. And the important thing is that he did carry out the Lord's command. Gideon came with two bulls and ten servants. With the bull's help, he pulled down the altar of Baal. Then he cut down the Asherah beside it. And with the wood of the Asherah, made it an altar to the Lord in its place. And then sacrificed the second bull to the Lord. Right? It's not good enough to simply remove idolatry. Worship of God must take its place. Service of the Lord must take its place. When the men of the town arose, they saw the devastation to their idols. They found Gideon out and they were angry. In fact, they demanded that he be put to death. Imagine that. Gideon touched their idol, so now they wanted to kill him. And that's a consistent pattern of idolatry. When people's idol is touched, usually they become angry. And that's a good check for us. If you find yourself to be angry, Check your heart. Ask yourself, am I angry because somebody touched, somebody harmed my idol? It's not necessarily the case. It certainly can be. These men, they were angry enough to kill Gideon. This is part of the cost of discipleship. Following the Lord means the rejection of the world. certainly was a case for our Lord Jesus Christ. Gideon tore down the idols during the night. But our Lord Jesus did it right in broad daylight. Think of our reading in John 8. The Pharisees, they were the men of the town, so to speak. Christ wasn't afraid of them. He didn't tiptoe around them, trying not to offend them. He just gave it to them full blast. If you were children of Abraham, you would... Be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, like the men of the town try to kill Gideon. A man who has told the truth that I heard from God. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Wow. Strong words. Again, the Pharisees ready to kill the Lord Jesus like the men of the town want to kill Gideon. Eventually they did. They killed them on the cross. That's good news for us. It's because through Jesus' death that we are finally set free from sin forever. And his death had paid for all of our idolatry, all of our sin. 
The true exodus, it happens through the blood of Christ. Christ purchased us with his blood. He purchased us so that we might belong to God forever and so that we might finally serve the Lord. It's through Christ's death that our old nature is is cut away from us. It's put to death. That's why we can be confident that God will be with us as he was with Gideon. That's why nothing shall separate us from God's love. It's because Christ, the innocent, was separate, the innocent one, was separated from God's love for our sakes. Now the men of the city approached Joash looking for Gideon. Draw near to the end of our text. They wanted to kill him. Joash responded, Shall you contend for Baal, or will you save him? If he is God, let him contend for himself. Clever response, and ultimately true. If Baal were really God, could Gideon fight against him and win? Of course not. That's a good test, isn't it? The true God will defend himself. If you fight against a true God, you're going to lose. That's true of our Lord as well. The Jewish leaders in the time of the apostles used this sort of thinking also. They were seeking to destroy the New Testament church. In Acts 5, the Pharisees wanted to kill the apostles, but a Pharisee named Gamaliel said to them all, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. In the present case, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is from man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overcome them. You might even be found opposing God. When someone opposes a true God, they will lose. Gideon opposed Baal, but it didn't hurt him one bit. That's because Baal's an idol. We serve the living God. We serve the living Christ, God's Son. Gamaliel was right. If the New Testament church was of God, no one will be able to overcome it. That's why you can be sure no one in this world will be able to overcome Christ's church. If anyone contends with Christ's church, Christ himself will contend with him or with her. That's why we can be confident. We serve the living Lord. He will be with his church. He will be with his people forever. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's word by singing together Psalm 135, stanzas 1, 7, and 10.